the rest of you, it's good to see you. It's been a couple weeks since I've been up here. I uh, hope you've enjoyed Whittle and Weber as they've walked us through uh, the prayer in Ephesians. Um, you know, they did such a good job actually covering it uh, that I decided um, that I didn't necessarily need to jump back in. I had originally scheduled hitting on the prayer one more time myself, but didn't necessarily feel the need to do that. Uh, but then, if it, you, this is kind of a little bit of kind of behind the scenes preacher work, but like we, we have a, I have a schedule of things I want to hit. And in particular, if there's one thing on the calendar that you're like, I have gearing this preaching schedule towards, that is Easter Sunday. And if I jumped into the next passage I wanted to go to in Ephesians, I would get ahead and it would totally mess up my schedule. And so I was like, we're filling it in with something else. And I've actually, I, I had an opportunity this week to speak on anxiety at CO. And uh, it's actually something I've worked on uh, in a number of places in the last year. In fact, when I was going to take a sabbatical last year, uh, the plan was that the main thing I was going to study was this idea of anxiety. Because, um, and, and so that's what I want to hit on this morning, is to give us, as opposed to exegeting one text, but kind of give us an overview of what the Bible says on this significant topic in the life of a Christian. Um, and so we'll get to a, a number of places in God's Word that will be on the screen for you, but we're not going to start in one particular passage uh, this morning. But I, I had the, I, I've been attracted to wanting to talk about this issue um, for a number of years, uh, and, and it comes out of the pastoral experience I've had in the last couple of years, in, in particular in discipling men and in just simply being on the front lines of, of hearing about your particular concerns and issues. There was, there was a season of time a couple years ago in which I was leading a discipleship group. In the course of a matter of a couple weeks, I had three guys confess to me or confess in the group that they were having suicidal ideation. That, there was, that the, the stress and the anxiety in their life was such that they actually wondered, like, wouldn't it be better if I didn't, didn't live anymore? And then this is also personal to me, not so much the suicidal ideation part, but the, the role that anxiety has played within my personal story is about um, five or six years ago, I'd been here as a pastor for about three, three and a half years, four years, and around that time, anxiety seemed to take over my life. I was in a place where as a pastor and as a father and a husband, I was crashing and burning. On the few days that I might get off, I would take, I take one day off a week, and if I took that day off a week, and that was often being skipped, I would take two or three naps a day. Because what was going on is I was living off of adrenaline so much, and what happens is your cortisol levels go shooting up, you take time off, guess what happens on the, your body responds by going way down. This is why anxiety and depression are often linked to each other. And what I was finding in my own, in my own heart I was, in life is I was seeing expressions and consequences of this anxiety. Didn't even know that was what it was, was at that time. So much so that at that time we had just adopted Drew. And I was finding that when he cried, whereas the first two children, I could handle their cries for hours and hours. With him, I was having a literal visceral response such that I wanted to throw him in which I was, my anxiety was shooting up every time he cried, such that I, if I heard him cry, I would simply have to put him in his crib, if Meredith wasn't there, and walk away. Because I found that I was so agitated, everything about me inside was so elevated that I could not hold my baby in the way that I needed to. 
And I vividly remember one particular evening about to walk into a Bible study in which I had to, I was so amped up trying to get myself, convince myself to walk into this study. The anxiety was taking me over so much that it was almost like you do if you're going to try to max out on a bench. I was going, open the door, walk into the Bible study, just to try to get through a basic discipleship group. Anxiety is, as I've understood and studied over the last couple years, anxiety is not a problem that I have and that you don't. Anxiety is a human problem. Um, it, is in, it is embedded in the human dilemma. It is part of our humanity. Just think of it this way. What's the first sound that a baby makes? They cry. Now, are there cries? Are they, are they cries of doubt about the existence of God? In that moment when they come out of the womb, are they having an existential moment about where is God in this moment? No, babies don't have that capability. Are they cries of grief? No, they're, they're not cries of grief. They don't have the ability to process grief. No, it is a wail of what? Fear. What is happening to me? Why is it so cold out here? Why is this dude hitting me? What happened to my apartment? What the heck just happened to me? These are the questions. You come into the world petrified. And you leave this world in your final moments. Death is fearful. Fear is the most primal emotion there is. And so I want to talk about what it might look like to understand anxiety from a biblical perspective and to battle against anxiety for a lifetime. Not just in acute moments of fear, but what does it look like to battle anxiety for a lifetime. I want to simply begin this morning by setting the stage for the battle against anxiety. Setting the stage. This is just going to give some definitions and give us some assessment as to where we are culturally and as Christians in dealing with the issue of anxiety. Anxiety, I want to give you this definition. Anxiety is what you feel when an important thing, something important to you is under threat. When something important to you is under threat. There is a protective element to this, which is you're trying to protect something that you fear losing that is important to you. Then there is an achievement element to this, in which you fear being unable to attain something that is important to you. So one is, I want to protect my children from harm. The other is, I I want to do well on this test so that I can achieve a good grade. But both of them We're trying to deal with something that is important to us. And the fear there is if we cannot achieve it, it brings in anxiety. Anxiety is is actually a realistic part of life, which you can't get away from. Now, some people feel it more acutely than others because of how they're wired and maybe the nature-nurture part of their life. Some people feel it more significantly now because it's a very concentrated season of, of anxieties and stress and fears pressing into their life. Some because of traumas they've experienced. But anxiety is a realistic part of life. Now, there are certainly fears and anxieties that are psychotic, which is where you have a disconnection from reality, in which your fears are delusional, in which you you fear pink elephants that that are not there in the room. But most fears, most fears are actually consistent with the real world. We have fear because the world is wrong, and the world is broken, and the world is threatening, and because we do die, and because loved ones are taken away. And because we are small, and we are out of control, and unable to stop bad things from happening. And so we, (laughs) this is not psychotic fears. Anxiety is dealing with the world as it is. And this is why, if I were to give a further explanation of anxiety, anxiety is what you feel 
when something important, you sense that something important in your life is under threat, and then further, an anxiety is increased by the sense of being unable to protect or to attain something that is important to you. For example, let me just walk through some of the ways in which we feel anxiety. Trauma. Trauma is something bad happened to me, and I am too small or too weak to keep it from happening again. It sets in fear, sometimes low-lying, sometimes crippling fear. It stays with you even when the immediate danger is no longer there. But the remembrance of past fears and the fear that I cannot control that or keep that from happening again can be traumatic, can be anxiety, can build anxiety in your heart and life. Fear is embedded in shame and guilt. I've done something wrong, and I'm guilty of something, and I fear I can do nothing about it to wash myself clean. Shame. I fear that there's something, not just that I've done wrong, that there's something wrong with me. And there is something deficient, dirty, or unlovable about me, and I can't change it because it's a part of who I am. I feel nervous. That's the language of anxiety. I feel pressure to do well on this test. That's the language of anxiety. I feel my chest tightening as I walk into a new social situation or I go on a first date. That's anxiety. And let me say this, for many of you, for many of you, your anxieties are hiding behind an enormous giant rock called anger. And you're angry because you're scared. It is a fight response to your fears. And so anxiety is, quite frankly, something that we ought to expect to be a part of our life. In fact, if you're not familiar with anxiety, if there is none of it in your life, then you're probably not loving correctly. If you have no one or nothing that you love, then you won't feel anxiety. But people should be important to you. Providing for them should be important for you. Doing your job well should be important to you. Fulfilling your responsibilities, these are all important. And when they're threatened, you will feel anxiety. If you're not experiencing fear, it suggests there may actually be a weakness in you in body or soul. It means perhaps that you have an emotional leprosy. And therefore, when it comes to anxiety, I actually have some tough news. Some difficult news, particularly if you're young and you're hoping and you're kind of looking at your life and you're going, when I get there, life's going to be a lot more comfortable. Well, I have bad news for you. You see, as life goes on, the reasons and opportunities for anxieties only increase in the course of life. They usually do not decrease. The older you get, you have more children. You have more reasons to be concerned. Your children have grandchildren. We've now multiplied the anxiety possibilities. The things, life increases, and therefore the opportunities to be concerned, to experience fear, to experience loss, increases as well. And these natural parts of the human experience are compounded, though, by our cultural and societal moments. Every person in every society and every culture has had fear and anxiety. Whether our, now, whether our cultural moment right now exacerbates such things more or less than previous cultures and societies, I don't have the knowledge to say. But there are some things that right now that specifically cause and also hinder our ability to deal with our fears. Let me just give two, there's many, let me just give two that are like low-hanging fruit that are easy to diagnose. One is media saturation. And this is one of the ways in which we actually deal with our anxiety. I've had a stressful day, we say. And what is provided to us in our cultural context of actually dealing with our pressures and detoxing at the end of the day uh, is, is actually things that are causing more damage than good. 
We are overstimulated by Netflix and video games and social media. You can actually, the studies would show that these things do not give your, rest, your mind rest. They actually amp up your mind. You're not actually resting in the Lord or in, in healthy, common grace sort of ways. And the accessibility and pervasiveness of such things contributes to the increasing anxiety and stress that we feel. Instead of life being able to slow down, it feeds up. These things draw us away from both the common and the special graces. Now, what I mean by that is special graces are things like the Word and prayer and the spirits, things that are wrought spiritually in us. But then there's all these common graces that God has given to us, right? Like sleep and relationships, rest. So connection with others. Social media actually causes disconnection from others instead of real connection. Watching Netflix for four hours in a night causes you to, guess what, lose sleep instead of getting the sleep that you need. It it causes your mind to pace, to go faster as opposed to quieting your mind. Instead of exercising, you find yourself playing video games. Instead of experiencing fresh air or time with the Lord or doing things that are holistic development of the brain, such as playing music, which helps the left and the right sides of your brain communicate with each other. Instead, we're doing this, with drool coming out of our mouths emotionally as we just simply scroll through. And the scope and pace of our media is just crushing us. Do you understand that we are not equipped, like what we could say is our global understanding of every problem of the world, we are not equipped to deal with. You are not designed to know every single problem behind every political and cultural door that is out there and to be able to handle it. And yet in the world in which we live, every hour, every minute, we are bombarded with the news, the next bad thing. And so our media saturation is causing kind of this influx of anxieties. But second, I'd say there's a more idolatrous thing going on as well. And that is our obsession with autonomy in our culture. Individual, individualism and individual freedoms comes with great benefits. But individual freedoms and rights and expressions, these are great things. But it also comes with a poison pill. It comes with a poison pill. If you are an individual and it's all about you individually, then all the weight of your life and all the weight of your problems is on you and you alone. You and you alone. The broader family is disintegrated. Where in times past there was issues of scarcity of resources, and by the way, if you're not sure where your food is going to come, that's a problem, and it would probably cause some stress. That's a previous culture's issue. But the burden, the burden that we now feel by, by not having larger family units, aunts, uncles, grandparents that are around us, we now feel the full pressure and burden on us as the individual. And then even think about this in regards to kind of your sense of what you're called to do in this life. We are taught in this world, in this world of autonomy and expressive individualism, is that you can be anything that you want. And that is wonderful until you realize, I can be anything that I want. Which means I have to choose of anything and everything out there, and I am fully responsible for accomplishing my dreams. An endless amount of choices drives us utterly crazy. An endless amount of fear comes with it because we constantly fear that have I made the wrong choices. So whereas life used to be handed to you, you'd go, you'd go work for dad on the farm, and that's what you did, and that came with its own difficulties and challenges. But now it's, you got to make something of yourself in a meritocracy, and you have to do it individually. And then there's the question for us as Christians, how are we responding to the presence of anxiety in our lives? The answer, not well. Not well. Our response to anxiety, I have found wanting in my experience pastorally. Now, let's see two different approaches that we've taken as Christians to anxiety. One is over-spiritualized language, but lazy action. 
over-spiritualized language, but not much action. Most, most people that use this as a cop-out, as a cop-out, they use over-spiritualized language, and it usually begins with sentences like this, with the words, I just. I just. I just got to read my Bible more. I just got to get in the accountability group. I, I just need to trust God more. It's symbolic. That the, the simplicity of the answer is actually emblematic of someone who is lazy, not being willing to face the actual challenges of their own anxiety in their life. And they're too lazy to take on the responsibility of, of recognizing those, those issues and also too lazy to actually do anything that they just said they need to do. I just, and they don't do the I just. I just. In other words, what we have are those who give lip service to spiritual practices but are actually not committed to them enough. And also because laziness describes their life and a lack of commitment and discipline, they also don't have the fortitude to actually even pursue those common grace things that God has given us, much less the special graces of his word and prayer. And so you look at them and you say, well, maybe things, things are look fairly complicated than your just, I just statement. Maybe you need to see a counselor, or perhaps you need to actually start working out. Maybe you need to drink less. Maybe you need to put away Netflix. Maybe you need to actually start eating healthier. These things might actually help you, but they're, they're not disciplined enough to do that. They over-spiritualize the answers as a means of copying themselves out of doing the hard work. And then there's others who undervalue spiritual practices by looking overly to common graces There are those who ascribe to a robust view, perhaps, of the common graces, such as therapy and medication and working out and healthy eating and good rest, but are so caught up in the way of the world that they scoff. Literally, they scoff at the idea that healing comes from steep spiritual practices. And so here's the interactions I usually have. It goes something like this. I'm really struggling with anxiety and stress these days. Oh, man, I say, I'm so sorry. I'm here for you. I care for you. I want to walk with you this. How about this? After understanding more, how will we understand and, and address some of your concerns? I'll memorize a passage of scripture with you on the goodness of God. And I would love to meet with you. Let's go. Would you want to go on a prayer walk with me and we could pray over lunch for an hour about these things? Their response. Oh, no, no, no. You see, my anxiety is so complex. I just don't think I can have a band-aid like a memory verse or a short time of prayer is going to resolve the complexities of my traumas and my anxieties. And I want to say... To them, clearly, you have not actually read the Bible. Because while I see that the Word of God is living and active and able to, to pierce between bow and, arrow, bow and marrow, I never see that the Word says it's simply chicken soup for the soul. That it's simply a band-aid that you kind of pop on, that you read to yourself whenever you have an anxious thought. Quite frankly, I am deeply empathetic to the unique challenges this moment in history puts before us as Christians, I'm also deeply distressed by both the laziness and also the earthly superiority that some have taken in regards to these old spiritual practices that have served Christians for two millennia. This is not to say that if you're currently in the throes of deep anxiety and you have your traumas, that I hope that you experience me now as browbeating you. You are where you are. You are where you are. And I am here and this church is here to walk with you. But what is the pathway from moving to where we are into a place of courage in our life without excuses, 
that we're not going to simply just kind of look at our lives and say, I'm not going to do anything. We have come to believe in our overly therapized Christian culture that values faux authenticity, that believes that simply acknowledging that I'm weak, that I'm broken, that I'm stressed, that I'm anxious, that I'm riddled with anxiety, that simply acknowledging things resolves me of the responsibility to fight like crazy to address the place I found myself in. To cry out to the Lord, this is what we call prayer, and to fight our anxieties and fears with a sword, which is called the word of God, is what it looks like to fight. And I've begun to have the sneaking suspicion that in all of our acknowledging about how broken we are is far less a confession born of conviction wrought by the Holy Spirit, but is the pleading of men and women to not be held responsible for where they are. The church falls short when we encounter brothers and sisters, though, who are in the throes of anxiety and provide them simply pat answers and quick solutions. I'm going to give you Bible verses, but I don't think they're pat answers or quick solutions. I don't offer them believing that memorizing a scripture passage today will relieve you immediately or automatically of fears tomorrow. I'm not offering quick solutions for small problems, but I'm offering deep solutions, pressed, the word pressed into your soul for a lifetime, a lifetime of deep struggle, because your anxiety and your fears, they're not going away. For our problem is deep and our struggle is long. And so for us, what are the truths that God has given to us to fight our anxiety? Listen, if I, man, there's a couple places in the scriptures we could take you. Luke 12, Matthew 6, where Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount, he very explicitly deals with anxieties. He says, don't worry. And he gives stuff like, hey, they're flowers of the field. God feeds their, clothes them. And birds, he feeds them and stuff like that. There's like eight reasons why he says answers to our anxieties and worries. I don't have time to do that this morning. I've just spent most of my time just trying to introduce the issue. But I do want us to address two particular ways in which the the word speaks to our anxieties. And real quickly, I want to evaluate your anxieties. Remember, anxiety is what you feel when something important in your life is under threat. And it's increased by the sense of being unable to protect or attain something that is important to you. So which means some of your fears are perfectly legitimate. It is not wrong to be afraid. It is not wrong necessarily to be afraid. Indeed, often it is appropriate to feel fear. When a bear is coming at you, fear is a good thing. It's this instinct in your body that says, run. That's a good thing. That's been given to you by God. Some of our fears, though, are legitimate and right, but then our responses to those fears are illegitimate. Let me give you some examples. What if I lose my job? Legitimate fear. But then I say, I don't know if I'll be able to go on illegitimate extreme. Another example, if she breaks up with me, very legitimate fear. I'll die if she breaks up with me. Illegitimate extreme. Some of our fears are realistic, but our response to them, maybe it's a fight or flight mechanism within us, we might say is wrong. Example, I fear I don't have what it takes to fulfill my role as a husband, as a father, so I escape and run from my responsibilities as often as possible. That's flight. Example, I fear my child is going down the wrong path, so I'm going to control every interaction in their life such that they live in a hermetically bubbled seal that can, it contains only me and them. Fight. This is also wrong. You will always have reasons to fear and anxieties will always press in, but do the voices of your fears and your anxieties get to be the dominating and directing voice in your life? If they are, then they are inordinate and that is sin. And you have an idol. You will have fears, and many of them will be reasonable and understandable and even good, but do they control your life? I'm going to say this. Inordinate fears and understanding, inordinate anxieties that control our lives are the result of either, one, 
giving too much importance to certain things. Epithumia, Paul calls them, over-desires. It means you, you view them as too important, especially in a world in which you have a God, you have a God who is loving and good. That in other words, these things are more important to you than the Lord. And or you trust in yourself as the one who will ultimately be responsible to either achieve what you want or to protect what is important to you. In other words, you're not trusting God, you're trusting self. That's going to cause anxiety because you don't have the power or the ability to protect the things that are ultimately important to you. So God gives us two responses that directly confront these things. My over-importance of other things in life and my trusting of self. Here's what he says. Here's the two most common responses in the Bible to our anxiety. The first one is this. I am with you. I'm with you. This is the permanent nearness of God in your life. This is his promise. God says, I am near you and I am for you. This can be seen throughout the scriptures all, all over the place. Psalm 34, verse 6, the psalmist is crying out. He says this, the poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. This is bringing to this reflective idea that God is all around me, that he is near me that he has drawn close to me. Remember Elijah and his servant, when the Assyrian army surrounds them, they're coming to kill him, and Elijah's servant is freaking out a bit. And so Elijah says, Lord, would you help him to see? And he opens his eyes, and he sees the angels that surround the army of Assyria. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, God says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. Why? Why should you not fear? For the Lord your God goes with you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. Deuteronomy, or Isaiah 43, verse 2, when you pass through the waters, you're going to have troubles. I will be with you, though, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Our God comes to us, and his most prominent answer to our fears is, I'm here. I'm here. When Jesus shows up and he encounters widows that have lost children, he says, do not cry, I'm here. And you might say, well, I can't see Jesus. But we do have the presence of Jesus. Even more so than they had in the Old Testament, we have the Holy Spirit. And this is why it says in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God has given us a spirit of, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And so when the world says to you, you're depressed, you're anxious, therefore you can't do anything, you say, that is a lie. The word of God says, I have the spirit of God in me. And he's given me power to overcome. He's given me self-control where I don't have to run to foolish things and I can actually love in the midst of this. In our fears, God's consistent answer is, I am with you, I am near you. Not only that, I am in you. And this addresses what is ultimately important to us or what is most desirous to us. Remember, anxiety is what you feel when you sense that something is important to you is under threat. And so my question for you is, what is most important to you? Because when I say to you, your God is near, and if it doesn't land as being significant to you, that might be a sign that God is really not all that important to you. I mean, there's certain people, if, I, if someone tells me if I'm in a hospital bed, and, and, my wife, and someone says, your wife is right here, that means a lot to me. That means a lot less to me than some Joe blow off the street. He shows up. I don't care anything about how he, his, his involvement in my life. If you care about God, if he is the most important in your life, and then you realize that he is there with you, that will actually move you in the midst of your fear. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find both in Matthew 6 and in Luke 12, Jesus is calling people not to be anxious. And he gives a series of reasons not to be anxious, eight of them. But the crescendo argument is this, that the antidote to anxiety is to seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things that they were concerned about, clothes, food, sex, relationships, these things will be provided for you. And not only that, but it says the kingdom and all that it provides will never be taken away from you. Which means, hey, go after something that's the most important and something that can never be threatened by the things of this world. Where moth and rust come and destroy. So you don't have to fear losing the king and the kingdom. In other words, the logic says this. Your fear is connected to losing things that are important to you. And indeed, you might lose them. And indeed, you will lose them in this life. But if the one thing that you most desire is God and his kingdom, that thing can never be taken away from you. Which means this. There's a limit to your fear. There's a limit to the degrees of your anxiety. You always have them, but there's a limit to them, and they don't necessarily have to control your life. In other words, what I'm trying to give you here is far less of a strategy to get rid of your anxiety. Instead, I'm trying to give you a relationship for you in the midst of your anxiety. A God who would say, I come alongside you in the midst of when your fears, your worst fears are actually realized in your life. And not only that, but a vision for a better life. Because that's what's, right? That's what brings our anxiety. My, my vision for a good life is being threatened. He'd say, the kingdom of God is great because not only does it give you a relationship with the king, but it also gives you a vision for a life of peace and joy and beauty and clothing and relationships. So the first thing God says to us in our fear is, I'm here. I'm here. Second thing he says to us most often in the scriptures to our anxiety and our anxious hearts is, I am in control. I am in control. This is the providential kingship of God over your life. Matthew 6, verse 34 says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is, <laughs> Jesus is being cheeky here. Can tomorrow think about itself? No, that's ridiculous. But who can think about tomorrow? The one who's planned tomorrow. In other words, what he's saying is this, I am in control of tomorrow, so you worry about today. You deal with what you have before you today. Someone much greater than yourself is preoccupied with tomorrow. The nature and the lie of where anxiety usually sends us and where fears begin to spiral out of control is where we take what's going on now and we put them in the future. Things that we are not at yet presently and the things that we cannot control. But God says, I am in control with tomorrow. My thoughts are already about tomorrow. Our Father in heaven has it. He's already on it. He has already taken up our worries and made them his own. He is the one who bears our burdens, and therefore we can trust him. Tomorrow is his domain, not yours. So I go back to our definition. Anxiety is what you feel when something important in your life is under threat, and anxiety is increased by the sense of being unable to protect or attain something that is important to you. In other words, what increases our anxiety is the belief that we can actually deal with the things that are threatening what is most important to us. The middle of the passage in Matthew chapter 6, verse 27 says, And which of you, by your anxieties, can add a single hour to his life? But that is the lie of worrying, isn't it? That my worrying can actually do something? Why would we worry if we didn't think that it was actually doing something to resolve the problem? But what does Jesus say? I have tomorrow. Warriors act, warriors act as if they might be able to control the uncontrollable. That's what warriors do. That's something central to the problem of worry. It's the illusion that we are the ones in control. 
We are the ones who are responsible for achieving this ultimately. That's our responsibility. Or protecting this, that that ultimately comes down to my abilities. Anxiety is the unattainable desire to control the outcomes of your life. But it's unattainable. No wonder we increase in anxiety. Because we keep beating our, 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 our heads against the door. We have fight or flight of dealing with the things that threaten us instead of choosing faith. But anxiety is increased in us when we, in the face of threat, we believe it is ultimately up to us to fix the problem. And here's what this will look like. It'll look like high control. It'll look like manic effort. It will look like, feel like an increased sense of pressure. Or, or if you're somebody who's easily overwhelmed and you will then therefore run from the problems. I love in the Marty Python and the Holy Grail when they fight, 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 uh, face the vicious rabbit who's destroying them and they see what the rabbit is doing. What do they do? Run away! Run away! Now, some people are afraid of biting rabbits and it's, they very easily go to fear. Other people, they will stand up and they'll fight even if it's foolishness and stupidity and they can't do anything about it. But there are those, it's still an issue, they run away. Why? Because they have not come to realize that they have a God who is near them. And they believe it is up to them to defeat this, and they go, I can't defeat this, so i got to peace out of here. And so what do they do? They bail on their wife, they bail on their family, they bail on the responsibilities that are in front of them. Here's some really good news. If God is in control, that means you aren't. Because only one person gets to be in control. Psalm 131, this is a great news to the psalmist. He said this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy my thing, myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned mother, with a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So much of our anxiety is worrying about things that are out of our control. We can only do what we can do today. And Jesus is saying, I have tomorrow. Let tomorrow have its own problems. You get small. You get small. Have a realistic understanding of what you can do and what you can do today. And you be faithful in this moment. The pattern of Scripture is what? Daily bread we're to ask for. Daily bread. We are so, we are, in the Israelites, we're told to pick up manna. For tomorrow? No. For today and today alone. And he, God says, my mercies are new. How long? When? What's the timetable? Every day. You see, God gives daily mercy, daily grace, daily provision. Maybe he's trying to tell us about the scope that we're supposed to have for our life. And this actually gives you the freedom to be wholly present right now. And this is addresses who or what we will ultimately trust. Will you trust you or will you trust God with your life? Jesus says here, worry and anxiety comes from putting our trust in the wrong things, namely us, when we have a sovereign God who we can look to and trust. Jesus says, put your faith in me and live for my kingdom. Oh, and nothing can take my kingdom away and nothing will take me away from you. And so that's the thing that you look for and you trust in. Understand the goal here, my goal is not to remove your feelings of depression or anxiety or even fear. My goal is for you to hope in God in the midst of it. I'm not trying to fix you as much as I want to root you in the Lord, that he is near you and that he is in control and that you would live a lifetime of diving deep into those truths such that you embrace them. Now, you might ask, how can I know that he is near? How can, I, how can you know that he is in control? That, that even when bad things happen, that there is good in the midst of them? Well, I'd ask you this. What did Jesus most fear? Do you remember Jesus' most anxious moments? The place where he felt the most pressure? It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. What do you see there? You see a man being crushed by his fears. 
under the fear. We see an emotional pressure that is taking such a physiological effect on him that he is literally sweating drops of blood. That's a physiological effect of the emotional fear and pressure that he's he's experiencing. What we see in the garden is a man facing down his worst fears. And what is that for Jesus? The loss of the Father and what tomorrow holds. And what the sovereign God has told them tomorrow holds. The loss of the Father. He felt the infinite weight of the cross. There he felt the loss of the Father's presence. The thing that he never wanted to lose, that he most wanted to protect, the crushing call of God's will in his life was go die, go take on wrath, face death, but without my nearness, without my voice, without my presence. For Jesus, it was to look to the sovereign will of the Father for tomorrow and what awaits him tomorrow, nothing but death, wrath, shame, and sorrow. And yet he does it and he faces it with obedience, his worst fears. Why? So that you and I can know he lost the nearness of the Father so that we can know that the Father will never be far from us. He'll never be far from you. And that we can know that if God can take ultimate eternal redemption out of this kind of tomorrow, what good will he bring out of my sufferings and things I fear about tomorrow as well? If God is sovereign, could he turn the rejection and death of the perfect son and his suffering death into your salvation? Then how much more can he take the sufferings that you might, that you most fear tomorrow and bring about good redemption? Just some practical things, therefore, to end. How do we deal with fear in the moment? I'm going to give you, <laughs> I am going to give you something very, very, it's alliteration. Isn't that fun? Four Ps, really quickly. In the midst of fear, in the midst of fear, when you're finding the stress elevating, when you're scared, when you're facing a test, here's what you do. First, pause to breathe. Close your eyes and listen to your breathing. I know this sounds like yoga. It is not. They're trying to wash your mind away. What I'm trying to say is anxieties are so often future-oriented, and what paying to your breath, paying attention to your breathing actually does is, is it focuses you into the one thing. And in, it brings you ultimately into the present. But we're not staying there. We then do this. We pray our fears. You know what the Psalms are? Prayers of cries to the Lord saying, I'm scared. Psalm 34, 6, the poor man cried and the Lord heard him. David, the Psalms are David praying his fears. Whew. God, I'm scared. God, I, I don't know what's, I, I don't understand. I don't know how to deal with this kid. I don't know what's going, I don't like the trajectory of this, what's going on in this relationship. You tell God. Third, you, the third P, you preach to your fears. <laughs> the Psalms could be described as this. It's a scared man talking to himself. <laughs> it's a scared man talking to himself. He's preaching to himself out loud. That's what the Psalms are. And I do think you should do it out loud. Fears? Yeah, I'm scared right now. But the Lord my God is with me. This is where, like, knowing his word will help. To have a backlog of ammo that you can preach to yourself. Psalm 42, it's what the psalmist does. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? He's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself. Why are you in turmoil? Put your hope in God. My salvation and my God. 
One old theologian called, named Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, so many of our problems in life comes from listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. That you allow your mind to ruminate on the foolishness and the, the scary things in this world, and you think that if you just think about it enough that you'll deal with your problems when in reality what you need to do is preach to your problems. And we must combat the voice of fear with the voice of truth. And third and finally, you participate in the present. You participate in the present. Because the call to overcome your fear is to be courageous and do the thing that God has called you to do next. And in your anxiety, you can't remember what the thing is you're supposed to do next. Let me just give you an illustration. A number of months ago, there was an unexpected bill. You ever had this happen? You come home from work. You're like, you got a night ahead of you. You, you get the mail. You open it up. Oh, my. Where did that come from? What begins to go through your head? In your panic, You've been checking the budget. Where can we cut immediately? Moving muddy around. This is what you think you have to do. We're going to redo the family budget, family meeting tonight. Panic, fright, anxiety. You breathe. You pray your fears. God, I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure where this money's coming from. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm preaching to my soul. All right, I can't control tomorrow. I can't fix this bill right now. What do I got to do? Usually what that means is this. I need to go do kingdom work, which probably looks like going to eat dinner with my kids and not being angry about the bill and taking it out on them. And I need to do the dishes. And I need to sit and be present with my wife. And suddenly kingdom work is being done. Tomorrow, tomorrow has its troubles of its own. Be present now. Lastly, I'll just simply say this. We want to shape the heart for the battle against anxiety, and this is very brief. John 16, 33 says this. I love it. Take heart. I have overcome the world. How do you shape your heart in the face of anxiety? One word. How do you shape your heart? Practice. Listen, I can't give you a specific truth and a specific Bible verse for every fear and every situation you'll face. We don't know what, will, what is coming, and we don't know what the anxieties of life will hold. But we can practice the presence of God, and we can practice it now. We can practice pausing. We can practice praying. We can practice speaking to ourselves. We can practice being present to what the Lord has for you right now. You see, some of you, you I hear this, and you're like, he's giving me Band-Aids, memorized verses, the power of meditating on God's word, the peace of prayer. That's all well and good. But that doesn't work for me in the midst of my fears and anxieties. I've tried that. We want to get things rid of our anxieties quick, but I never said that these things were going to happen quickly. Your anxieties aren't going away. And so what do you form in yourself to deal with the anxieties that will be there tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and often increasing, increasing power and weight? The riddle of anxiety is that we're surrounded, we're surrounded by them, and so we have to teach our heart to take courage and say, I am with you and I am for you, God says, and persist in that until we, our souls are convinced, convinced of it. You see, you're training your mind day in and day out. You're practicing certain speeches of anxiety. And God says if you're going to counteract those, then you need to daily practice other speeches of truth. So you need to get up and you need to pause and you need to breathe and you need to pray your fears and you need to preach to your fears and you need to get on moving with the day. And then some of you have disparaged the memorization of Scripture and the power of meditating and these old practices and long times and seasons of prayer walks. You say, reading a Bible in the moment of fear doesn't relieve my anxieties. Well, perhaps the relief of your anxieties in the moment is not the ultimate goal for us. Perhaps the goal is practicing turning to the Lord. 
That that's what maturity, maturity is maybe not actually that I'm less anxious in life. It's that I'm I actually more obedient and I'm more trusting in the midst of my anxieties. Let me give you a story to close. It's from Ed Welch. And he, he talks, I got this from one of his talks on anxiety. He's been very helpful for me. He talks about a heroic friend of his, he described. He said this man was in his late 50s, early 60s, and he began to having panic attacks. He was an elder in the church where Ed went, and he had been walking with the Lord for decades. He had raised his kids. He had got them out of the house. They had survived teenagehoods and college. These stressful things. He had been walking with the Lord for a long time, and he came to Ed Welch, who's a Christian counselor. He said, what in the world is wrong with me? Why am I having these panic attacks? What is wrong with me that after all these years of walking with Jesus, that my body would respond in this panicked way? And Ed said, I just want you, he's like, in telling this to the original audiences, I just want you to hear about his original panic attack. I asked him, what happened in your panic attack? Tell me what was going on. And he said this, he described it like this. The panic attack first happened in the midst of an idyllic moment. He and his wife were going out to dinner with some wonderfully close friends on a Friday evening. The work week was done. The Saturday that was ahead of him didn't have much to do. It was a Saturday of reading, maybe some golf, a wonderfully relaxing day ahead of him. And for the evening that night, it was nothing but good food and the best of company with good friends. It was like a vision of heaven. Why would anybody be anxious there? And yet in the midst of it, he had this rising anxiety that took over his body and suffocated him and seemed to just seize his body so that, so, such that all he could think to do was to run full speed out of the restaurant. And as soon as he runs out of the restaurant, the intensity of this panic attack and this spasm of fear was such that he vomited as soon as he got outside. So Ad asked, in that moment of utter terror, what were you thinking? And this man said, all I could think to do was say, Jesus, help. Jesus, help. Jesus, help. Ed, as a Christian counselor, says this, where does anxiety come from? Ultimately, we may not know. Where does the physicality of a panic attack come from? We actually don't really know. There's various things that could be behind it. But we don't actually have to know everything in order to call on the Lord. There are many things in life that will remain a mystery to us, and one of them is why I'm scared of so many things. That why has God allowed certain things to happen in my life that I am not in control? But I hope that what you'll hear in that story is a man who is incredibly mature despite panic attacks because he is incredibly mature in the midst of them. Because our expectations as we grow in Jesus is not that our anxieties will be fully dissipated and that we'll never feel like that again, but the expectation should be this, that whenever, whatever anxieties await you tomorrow, that you in that moment will call out to the word. And so I practice calling out to the Lord today so that one day, perhaps when my worst fears have been realized, in that moment, I'll call out to him there as well. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray for those in this room who are sensing, even talking about anxiety is anxious, is, brings up anxiety. <laughs> We don't, even, we don't even know why. Lord, we are a mystery. Um, but yet, Lord, I pray that uh, in humility we would acknowledge how significant the issue is for us. That we'd rep- we would just simply confess. But Lord, not just that, that we wouldn't stay there. You'd help us to cling. I pray that these things would not be band-aids to our life. That we would not treat the word as a band-aid. Lord, may it never be. 
Instead, may it be living and active in our souls. And so tomorrow would we get up and, and immerse ourselves deeply and practice breathing and praying our fears and getting quiet before you and preaching to ourselves. And where we don't have the ability to do that, may the Spirit come forth and say, Abba, Father, for us. And cry out within us and speak for us and give us the truth that we so desperately need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.